Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, today it is my great pleasure to welcome John Hines to the podcast. Welcome, John. Thanks, Jeremy. I'm excited to be here. I look forward to having a great conversation. I've been reaching out to folks first to interview great AEs, and then after interviewing uh, people that were recommended as great AEs, I got recommendations for great uh, first-line sales managers. So super excited to talk to John uh, since he's in that role. He is a sales director at TalkWalker for the US and Latin America, so we'll get a little bit of international selling perspective, which I love to get. And TalkWalker is a consumer intelligence and social listening platform. We're going to get into this, but the, the main topic of today's podcast will really be around what sales leaders can do to level up their game and how they pursue learning. But before we get into that, I would love to get to know John a little bit better. So I do understand, but I don't know what it is that you picked up a, a new hobby during the pandemic, as many of us have. What, what's been your passion during the last year and a half, two years? So the hobby I picked up, and it's actually appropriate to, the, to today's Veterans Day, it's called rucking. So if you know anybody or you've been in the military, you know that it's part of the basic training and their exercise regimen is to march with a rucksack. So there's actually a company in Florida called Go Ruck, veteran owned. And I have a rucksack three to four days a week. I walk with it for three miles. And the beauty of doing that, Jeremy, is not only are you getting the endurance, but you're getting it's weighted walking. So I have a 45 pound plate in a rucksack and I walk at about a 15 minute mile pace and you get a good workout. So you're getting, cause you're strengthening your core and you're getting an endurance workout all in one. And obviously the reason I picked this up during a pandemic is most gyms were shut down. Actually the gym I used to belong to unfortunately closed permanently. And so during that year of the pandemic, I didn't exercise like I used to. And so I said, you know, what, what can I do to stay in shape and to really make sure I'm performing at an optimal level? And I did some research and I was reading a book called The Comfort Crisis. And that was one of the things that they recommended that people do to exercise. And I bought the rucksack and I've been doing it rucking for, I want to say, the last six months. And it's been great. Well, great. So, you know, we want to talk about mindset of being a, a sales leader. J- just for listeners reference, like why John? So a, a couple of, of reasons one is, you know, as he took over his sales leadership role at Talkwalker, he has managed to get his team to double their win rates from 14 to 28%. And I think 14% win rates are, you know, if people were honest with themselves is not atypical in the industry, but 28% is quite awesome. You know, you, there are lots of ways to do that. So I'd love to sort of understand a little bit about that. And then he's also focused on, you know, the holy grail of subscription sales, which is to get multi-year subscriptions up. And he's increased the quantity of multi-year subscriptions by 50%. So uh, he doesn't only walk the walk or talk the talk, he walks the walk. So I, a good good pun there, I guess, with <laughs> with uh, Talkwalker. So we'll get into those things. But I guess in order to get there, we have to understand sort of mindset. So as you shifted from being uh, a, an individual contributor some time ago in your career to being a, a sales manager, what was that transition like for you? Well, for me, it was relatively easy because... You know, I was a competitive athlete in college and I'm all about team. And so I already sort of had a coach's mentality. I do mentoring outside of work. And so the transition for me was relatively seamless because by my nature, I have a servant leader mentality. 
I've been a volunteer for over 20 years. And so it's just part of my mental makeup and orientation toward life for me to be in a leadership role. So for me personally, making the transition from an individual contributor to a sales leader is consistent with my value systems. So you said the transition in because you had been mentoring, because you had been coaching, you know, was a relatively smoother one for you. As you have moved through different companies and observed, because you sound like a student of, of humans, as you have observed managers who have succeeded versus those who failed, wh- where do you see the, the, the differences? I think the biggest thing is for the managers who've been successful, they're the best example of learning agility. And here's what I mean by that. They recognize that we're in a fast-changing world where sales methodologies, philosophies, strategies, when in terms of prospecting and recruiting are changing, and they're most quickly to adapt to those changes. And not only that, they're disciplined in terms of how they interact with their team, meaning they're consistent in how they prepare for team meetings, for example. As a leader, you have to bring, you have to bring resources and novelty to your team, and you got to add value because you want your reps to want to look forward to team meetings. They shouldn't be saying, oh, we got another team meeting coming up. That's not good. They should be looking forward to team meetings, to one, because they feel like they're learning something, and two, they, they're leaving inspired to go and perform and overachieve. You know, in terms of the sales leaders that are successful, they have an orientation for learning agility. And I'll give you an example of that. As you know, I manage the LATAM team. So one of the things I'm doing right now is I'm relearning Spanish. I took Spanish in high school and I wish I took it in college. So that's one thing I would have done differently is I would have continued my language learning trajectory, but that's okay. Better late than never, as they say. So I'm in the midst of relearning Spanish and my LATAM team, they obviously appreciate that I'm taking the time and effort to relearn Spanish to support them on their calls. And so they've challenged me. They said, well, John, we want you to run an entire team meeting in Spanish. Wow. That's all. That's a good challenge. It's an, it's an awesome challenge. I was in Puerto Rico last weekend because we uh, had our long delayed 2020, so very long delayed sales club, president's club trip. And I, I got I was lucky enough to, to be able to go down there, even though I'm a sales strategy and operations person. And in the first day, I had taken Spanish. I lived, I grew up in Miami, Florida. So right, I was exposed to Spanish very regularly. You know, there's a very large Cuban population in Miami, and and my best friends from uh, basically zero to eight years old, my next door neighbors were uh, their folks were from from Cuba, and obviously they were Spanish speaking. And but but after that, I I learned Russian, so I found myself wanting to respond to people in Russian. That that if I had to look for a word, it was the Russian word coming up, and and it took me a day or so to you know to get some of that Spanish to to come back. All we're talking about lat you know latam as I was. Spe- doing a podcast recently with a sales leader over in EMEA, she pointed out that as, as one often hears is like EMEA is not, is not a place like the U S is, you know, is, is a place. France has a particular sales dynamic, Germany, the Nordics, the UK, Italy, Spain, like all of these different places have, have different cultures and, and ways to, to approach people. There's lots of commonalities, but I would assume the same thing for Latin America, right? Like Latin America is not a place what countries specifically are your reps selling into and, and how, what nuances are there in selling into those regions? So one is Brazil. So I have a rep who speaks Portuguese and Spanish. So she has Brazil, but she also now recently has some of the other LATAM countries we sell into, Mexico, Colombia, Ecuador, Argentina. 
And so one of the things you need to be mindful of is, is making sure that one, you truly educate the consumers on the nuances of your solution. So make sure that they fully understand what they're getting and what they're not getting. I think that's really important. And I mean, that's generally important, but it's really important with the LATAM region because one of the things you want to make sure you do is obviously retain your customers. So they need to be fully informed of what they're getting and what they're not getting so that they're more likely to continue long-term, not just for a year and then. Yeah, it's interesting. The person that I uh, had on the podcast, you know, she also cited this this concept of, it, it was Frances Arville. She also cited this concept of education that the sales cycles were a bit longer in Europe because you know they just required a bit more on the front end for for education. The other thing she talked about, which I think is also true from what I understand of selling in Brazil in particular, but I think throughout LATAM is the importance of of investing in in building the relationship before you're selling the relationship almost as much as you're selling the product or service or value. I would assume that's that's pretty in Brazil, but certainly the rest of Latin America is. You know, we talk about relationships in the U.S. and yes, they're important, but it's really, really important in you know Latin America. That that's the second point. Yes, I was going to make. Yeah, absolutely. It's really taking the time to develop that relationship so that they really have a comfort level with wanting to work with you because their their orientation is they want to deal do business with people they really for the long term, ideally. And for that to happen, you really have to get to know them. They have to get to know you, and ideally, seeing them in person. Now, obviously, with the pandemic, that's impacted <laughs> the ability to see people in person. But man, having that face-to-face time with the LATAM customer. Yeah, it's interesting. We talk so much in the U.S. now about how, and every time there's a there's a change, people think the change will stay completely without going going back and having a little bit of mean reversion. But like, I think we are becoming more virtual and selling in the states. But you know, to your point. We should not assume that will necessarily be true in other cultures that like, yes, maybe a bit more, but not, not off the charts because people are, are, are much hungrier for, it's not about efficiency anymore, right? Like in the US, it's often about efficiency above all else and, and elsewhere, no, right? It's not about that. It's much more about the, the human to human relationship. Um, getting back in the mindset, uh, one of the things I was thinking about was I wrote it down in my in my notes here as authenticity and energy, which is as a sales person, you you sort of have more license to grumble and seek solace from other reps and so on. You know, once you become a manager, you are the battery, right? You're the energy source for your team, but you also need to be authentic as well. That you can't just be raw, raw and over and sort of overlook things that are that are not working. How have you balanced that? tension between where where your feelings and how you feel about a situation may not actually match you know the the energy that you need to project that's a great question and so one of the things that i do to make sure that i manage my energy and that i'm the best example of my reps is making sure that i'm healthy and that i exercise self care not just the rucking obviously that's important too but you talk about meditation you talk about Another life hack or one of the things I do is I juice every day. So I get my fruits and vegetables first thing every morning. All of those things contribute to me operating at a peak state. It doesn't mean I ignore the problems and challenges that my team or myself is, are having. It's just I bring the right attitude and a solution orientation to addressing those problems. 
So I don't celebrate problems. I focus on solutions. Doesn't mean I ignore problems. That would be naive. We don't ignore problems. But we say, okay, once we've clearly defined what the challenge is, and I even don't even like using the word problem, I say challenge, different orientation. So I'm big on word choice <laughs> with myself self and my team. And so that's the type of orientation that I bring to the team. And then in terms of how I run my team meetings, so number one, I tell my team, I say, look, this is your team meeting. I want to make sure you get the most value out of it. So I actually start off my team meetings with what I call open forum. And then in Spanish, it's que dice la gente. So my reps have the floor at the very beginning. And there's a strategic reason why I do that. A lot of times, some managers, when they have a team meeting or a one-on-one, they start off with their agenda. And sometimes their agenda takes up the whole meeting and the reps didn't have anything or get a chance to say anything or express their views. So I make sure that that does not happen. So I start off my team meetings with an open forum. I actually start off my one-on-ones where it's their agenda first and then my agenda last. And again, that speaks to this whole servant leader philosophy that I have. And so when my reps present me with their challenges, I do give them a space to do it because I think it's important because they want to be heard. So you've got to do that. But once they've done that, then I say, okay, so now that you've told me that, what are some steps we can take to address this issue? So I get them then to pivot first, listen to them first, and then get them to pivot. What are some possible solutions to the challenge? What are the types of challenges that they bring up? Are they deal-related challenges or are they more internal product, company, service, like related stuff or personal? Like what, what do they tend to talk about from a challenge perspective, at least in the team meetings? Uh, deal-related and process, internal, some internal challenges. Got it. So they might bring up a specific deal and look for coaching from you as well as their peers, I would assume, on the deals. Um, you know, have you seen the situation? How do I break through? What recommendations do you have? And then, yeah, pr- process, right? Everyone's uh, CPQ processes could be <laughs> could be smoother and, and you know, approvals for, for, you know, discounting or product or service modifications, implementation changes. Yeah, those, those all make sense. In those team meetings, one, one thing I, I was reading about recently, it might have been um, in uh, a sales, this book about sales differentiation by, by Lee Sauls or his later latest book called Sell Differently. I think he was talking about this, that salespeople hate role plays and that role plays also are very, very artificial. Do you do role plays in team meetings or, or one-on-ones? And what's your perspective on, on like how to make those not seem, because I've done them plenty and they, there is an artificial nature to them. I do do role plays in team meetings and one-on-ones. I don't do them as often, but often enough where they don't become stale, for the lack of better words. In terms of my philosophy to role plays, I actually think they are valuable in two perspectives. One, in terms of developing proficiency, let's say in asking those second and third level questions of prospects to uncover business and personal value. I think doing role plays is important there. And I also see a lot of value in role plays when it comes to screening candidates. I mean, you talked about that in in your book, because to me, one, it indicates their level of preparedness and interest in the opportunity. So even if they don't do a great job in a role play per se, the fact that they had a great attitude about it and were willing to put themselves out there, that speaks volumes to me. That, That says something to me about a candidate. So I see the role play as valuable in two aspects, not just in team meetings and one-on-ones, but also during the recruiting process. Yeah. I expect, you know, when I'm hiring or being hired, 
to be enthusiastic, to be incredibly well-prepared. Absolutely. I'm curious in, in your recent experience, right? Uh, is It is very much a reps market right now, right? And it's a it's an employee's market, I think, in, in so many, uh, so much of the professional sector, actually all sectors, right? Because we're, we're incredibly hungry for service workers in, uh, throughout the world, actually, uh, especially in the, in the States. Have you in any way relaxed your expectation about candidates' enthusiasm and preparedness just because we're so hungry for, for capacity? No. And I'm going to tell you why. And you understand this, Jeremy. I recently read a reminder of how important it is, recruiting is. So there's a book called The Qualified Sales Leader by John McMahon. Everybody's talking about that book right now. Outstanding book. So for those who don't know who he is, he is the only five-time CRO of publicly public software companies, SaaS companies. And at PTC, he went 43 consecutive quarters hitting his number to Wall Street. That is unheard of. That's almost 11 years. And so one of the things he said is, you're going to be defined by how well you recruit ultimately. He says, if you're a great recruit, whether you're a great recruiter or a lousy recruiter, that's how you're going to be defined largely. He's a big proponent of being very diligent in recruiting A players. So, so I answered that question by saying, no, I have not relaxed my recruiting standards. Matter of fact, you know what surprises me though, Jeremy? I'm surprised how few people actually look up my LinkedIn profile. And this is something basic. Like this is interviewing 101. I'm amazed at the quantity of candidates that I interview who don't even do that. That to me is, it, in this day and age, it's shocking actually. One of my favorite interview questions I got from Dan Murphy, who I've worked with, or I had worked with for years at, at Gardner. And he always asked the question, in your preparation for this interview, what did you learn about me? And I think it's a great, it's a great question because you're testing curiosity, right? And, and great reps are curious and, and great reps are prepared. If for something as important as, you know, the job you're going to do for years of your life, where you're going to spend, you know, potentially more time than you spend with your own, with your own family, why would you not do that? I think it's a huge red flag if they haven't researched you. It really is. And hey, I'm an LSU guy. So that's a great way to establish rapport with me. And the people who've interviewed well with me, more times than not, they bring that up. I also wanted to come back to something else you mentioned, which is you know when you're coaching your reps on deals, you mentioned exploring business and personal value. I'd love for you to expand on the personal value side that sometimes I, I if I'm in buying mode, and I get some of those like personal value questions, they can rub me a little the wrong way. But there are lots of different ways of asking them. And there are lots of different types of personal value. So what, what, what's the personal value that you direct your reps to, to focus on? So one of the things I think the listeners need to be aware of is you have to pick the right time to ask those personal value questions first and foremost. You can't ask that in the beginning of the discovery. You have to earn the right to ask certain questions, and some of those, and it, which includes personal value. Just like you have to earn the right to ask someone what, you know, what some of their success metrics are for their role. You don't ask those questions at the beginning of discovery. You've got to earn the right and deliver some value first before you ask those questions. Now, in terms of some examples of personal value questions, you can just say, hey, Jeremy, so you mentioned to me that you know, implementing a conversational intelligence platform is really critical for 2022. Would you say the successful implementation of this project could lead to a promotion or some type of reward or recognition. And he may say, well, yeah, yeah, I have a bonus tie to this. Right, right, right. Is it an OKR, right, for people who have objectives and key results? Uh, yeah, I'm with you. As, yeah, what do you, what do you, yeah, it's the success metrics. What are you measured on? I also think so much of buying is 
you know, there's a risk, right? Because you're you're gonna if you're the champion, right? You're going to bat for something, and if the thing fails, and so much fails in implementation, right, and and doesn't even make it out of there, or just doesn't get adopted, and so on. Like if the thing fails, yeah, like you put a lot of energy into this, so it's 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 your reputation at risk, which can affect promotions and and things like that. And even if it didn't, you just don't want to fail, right? Like you don't you don't want that on your record because you lose influence at that point. Then people don't take your your word as as seriously as they did before yeah they may they may not you may, you may not be able to be a champion on the next thing if the last thing didn't work I, i'm totally with you we're we're running low on time but i wanted to ask you uh one, one more question i think there's a, a perennial question around sales leadership which is uh, your philosophy around how deeply first-line sales managers can, should get involved in individual deals like when do you find yourself jumping in what situations what t- deal timing if at all do, do you get involved directly with the customer so that's typically negotiation phase. Sometimes I'll get involved in the solution phase and attend customer custom demonstrations. But most typically it's during the negotiation phase where there's some interesting commercial terms that they're proposing. For example, they may say, well, we, we want a 30-day opt-out clause. You know, we want this pricing or we want this capability. One of the things that I make sure I reinforce with my reps is if they ask for something, you want to ask for something in return. <laughs> for example, if they say, well, we want a 30-day opt-out, you know, one of the things you could say is, you know, you know, we could find out, I could find out from my uh, head of sales if providing a 30-day opt-out is feasible. If we were able to get you a 30-day opt-out, would you commit to moving forward unless by the end of the month or something like So you've got to ask for something in return. Yeah, commit to moving forward, commit to a multi-year deal, commit to upfront whatever 60-day terms instead of 90-day terms, right? Like ask ask for something. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I also think the other context, right, is and it's it's this is a true manager skill, which is when you hire newer reps, then you're going to be much more involved in their deals so they can see what's going what's going on. And the skill though is is knowing when to back off, right? Like knowing when to let them fly. And so John McMahon in his book, Qualified Sales Leader, brings up this point, not just with newer reps, but reps who are struggling versus reps who are your stars. And I think one of the dangers of being a sales leader is you end up spending too much time with your new or underperforming reps and not enough time with your top reps because your top reps need coaching too, believe it or not. (laughs) Some people, they still need coaching, even though they're doing great and they're somewhat self-sufficient, that doesn't mean you just forget about them. And so as a leader, you've got to be careful to manage both working with new sales reps and reps who are struggling versus your star reps, because you could actually get a lot more, even more productivity out of your star reps with some additional coaching, because I'm sure there's, with any good top performer, there's still maybe some blind spots that they're not aware of that you can highlight and provide some coaching that can make them even more productive. So you've got to, it's a, it's a juggling act, but you've got to be able to know when to back off and also pivot to helping your top performers. Yeah. And although I lead RevOps uh, and, and revenue strategy teams typically and not salespeople, I, I love listening to call recordings of top sales reps for two reasons. One is I'm learning what they're doing. So I think for sales managers also, not only do you have the opportunity to coach people, but you have the opportunity to sort of observe and watch what they're doing so that you can up your game, right? You talked about learning agility earlier. You can up your game and teach you know, your average and underperforming reps to do those things. And don't just assume that what you know, right? Don't assume what got you here will get you there and will get your your reps there. But then I also love giving them feedback on those call recordings. And they, 
you know, to the person, the top reps hugely value that because I think, right, they're almost underfed relative to the rest of the team. I agree. The worst mistake I ever made when uh, first, when I was a first-time manager was I, I focused all my attention on my bottom performing person. And that was a humongous mistake. Absolutely tragic mistake. So yeah, that's that's really, really good advice. But wow, we covered we covered a lot of ground. Um, I, I love your focus on on mindset, on learning, on you know, establishing value, how you run team meetings. I, I think this is uh, incredibly, incredibly valuable, and I'm sure our listeners will find the same. If you know, if people are looking to, you know, in this war for talent, if they're looking to get a position at Talk Walker, I guess both in the US or Latin America, is it okay for people to message you on LinkedIn? Absolutely. We are hiring. We're growing, particularly in the US. Uh, we're growing geographically. So if there are any candidates out there who are looking to join Talkwalker or are interested in exploring the opportunity, uh, we, w- we would welcome having a conversation. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys. Uh, that was John Hines from Talkwalker. Thanks, Jeremy. I thoroughly enjoyed today's conversation. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.